Well, good morning. Um, sorry, I'm going to use this stool again. I'm getting there. Hopefully by next week I won't have to sit on a stool. I'm getting used to it though. The stool is uh, molded around my butt. Uh, so it's getting more comfortable. I'm Pastor Pete, by the way. I don't usually uh, start by talking about my butt, but really glad that you could join us at church today. Um, now, there's a book coming out in October by a comedian whose name is Sarah Cooper. And um, have a look at the title of this book. Can you make sure I can click forward? Yeah. How to be successful without hurting men's feelings. Non-threatening leadership strategies for women. And this is what she says the book is about. In this fast-paced business world, female leaders need to make sure they're not perceived as pushy, aggressive, or competent. One way to do that is to alter your leadership style to account for the sometimes fragile male ego. So she has nine strategies. I'll just show you the, some of them. So when setting a deadline, you got to do it in a non-threatening way. You know, what, what do you think about getting this done by Monday instead of this has to be done by Monday? You know, watch out for that male ego. Uh, sharing your ideas, right? You want to suggest it. I'm just throwing it out there. You don't want to say I have an idea because the male ego may not be able to handle that. Emailing requests. Well, it's really important. You're not direct about it. You've got to put in a lot of emojis. Can I take a peek at your presentation? When it's ready, smiley face, smiley face, smiley emoji. And uh, when you're collaborating, just be careful. You don't want to show yourself as looking too competent. So make sure you're only typing with one finger. Now, of course, this is a comedian. It's tongue-in-cheek. But there's enough truth in it to sting, isn't there? Women, and you might be a woman working in, especially in the workplace, and male egos can be very fragile, yeah? Men can often be terribly sexist and terribly egotistical, especially as bosses. But yet, if they are subordinates to you, they're really fragile and easily threatened. Now, into this world, a passage like the one we just read out, 1 Corinthians 11... We'll talk about head coverings for women. We'll talk about men being heads. And let's admit it, that can really grate. It may even be deeply offensive upon first reading to you. Now I want to let you know that this passage is probably one of the hardest, if not the hardest passage in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's certainly the hardest passage I've had to wrestle with in my 15 years preaching. I put a lot of work into it, probably more reading and thinking about it and listening to other people's sermons on this passage than I've done for, for, for as long as I can remember. And it's likely that even then I'm not going to be able to answer a lot of the questions and objections you might have. Now we will have a question, a Q&A at the end of this sermon as well. So if you do have questions, maybe jot it down and uh, ask it at the end. But I'm going to really ask God to help help us engage with this difficult part of the Bible and help me talk as I do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would humble us so that we might receive your words, even if it comes to us initially as really uncomfortable, maybe even offensive. Help us to give you a hearing. Help me to present it clearly. Help me to present it truthfully. But most of all, we pray that we wouldn't leave here just feeling uncomfortable or just feeling like 
Maybe some of our questions on this difficult passage has been intellectually answered. I pray, Father, that even through a difficult part of Scripture, you might be changing us through your Word and by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So you want to um, you want to do two things today. One is you'll want to make sure the Bible is open. Uh, it's always a good idea when the preacher is preaching that your Bibles are open because I don't want you to believe it because the preacher says so, because I say so. You want to be checking with Scripture. And secondly, um, today probably it'll be a good idea to have your outlines because there's a bit of a logic to what I'm going through. Okay, let's go. Key foundations, let's begin with that before we even get into the uh, passage. I want to firstly say how important it is that we remember what our view of the Bible is. What, what is this, this book, 66 books, collection we call the Bible? Our view of the Bible here at Southwest is Jesus' view of the Bible, which means that we believe this is God's own inspired Word. All right? And it comes to us, God gives us His Word because He loves us. That is key foundation number one. God loves us, and He wants us to know Him, and He wants what's best for us. He made us. He created us. He knows what's best for us. And that includes things that we might find hard to understand and hard to accept. If you think about it, if, if the God we worship never says anything that challenges us, makes us uncomfortable, then there's a chance we're just worshiping ourselves. Isn't that true? Now, 1 Corinthians 11, this passage, I'll tell you what, it'd be much easier if we just skipped over it. It's just 14 verses. You can accidentally skip over it. That'd be easier. Um, I could have put it on that Sunday between Christmas and New Year's when no one's here anyway. That would have been easier. But no, at Southwest Evangelical Church, we believe, as Jesus believes, that every single word in this book, every part of the Bible, is God's good word. We don't avoid it just because it's there and it makes us have to put in the hard work. No, we want to preach through 1 Corinthians, and this is the passage we happen to be on this week. So we're going we're gonna to do it because we believe God is good and He loves us. Okay, second principle. God's good word comes to flawed people. Now, we're going to find that God's good word is going to come to us. And it's going to be hard sometimes because we are human. We're flawed in lots of ways. Firstly, we're flawed in that we're limited, just even in terms of understanding. Okay? We are limited. Even the smartest human being is limited, is finite. And so when I find a part of Scripture, the Bible, that's hard to understand, I need to know that the problem is not with God. The problem's with me. I'm just limited. Now, this passage probably has more written on it. Books, uh, articles, journals, lots of smarter people than me trying to work it out. But even then, we're limited in our understanding. Okay, now I'm not saying that nothing in this passage is certain. We will see that the central message of this passage, as well as any difficult passage, by the way, all right, they're certain. But you know, there's going to be a lot of things that I will be less certain of. Other than the central certain bits, there's going to be stuff that I'll ha be happy to say, look, I'm just not sure. And it's okay to admit that sometimes because we're limited. All right? But you know what? More than just us being flawed in our understanding, we human beings live in a world where the world is affected as well as we are affected by this thing called sin. That's really important to remember in a passage like this because here's the thing. There is a real possibility in a group this size, more than likely, 
that even as those words were being read out, that is bringing up real pain for you personally because you've been sinned against. Now, passages like this get misapplied. It gets misunderstood by churches or Christians and particularly Christian men and it's sometimes used to justify abuse, terrible abuse. And you might be feeling that this morning. And if that's you, we want to mourn with you, grieve with you because it shouldn't have happened. Abuse is wrong. We want to walk with you. And we want to listen to you. And it may be that you need to have some time to talk with myself or one of the elders or pastors, it may be that you need to actually talk to the police because what's done currently even that you're enduring is illegal and wrong and is sinful. And at Southwest, we want to just affirm that abuse of any kind, domestic, family violence especially, is unacceptable. And it can never be justified by the Bible because God is not abusive God is a loving Father who gives us His good Word, and His good Word, when it's read and applied properly, should never give rise to abuse. Okay, so let me say that right at the outset. Next thing to remember, though, is that God's unchanging Word comes to changing cultures. This book, the Bible, is not like the Quran. It's not like the Book of Mormon. It's not just dropped out of the sky, dictated to one person, so that culture, context, human authors don't really matter. That's true of the Quran, it's true of the Book of Mormon, it's not true of the Bible. The Bible comes to real people in real time. We've been seeing it all throughout 1 Corinthians, right? This is a real letter written by a real person who existed, Paul, to a real church that existed in Corinth, in modern Greece, in a particular time, around the 50s AD, about two decades after Jesus died. All right, so God's Word is unchanging, but it does come to changing cultures. And so we will see in this passage both the unchanging Word that transcends culture, that is, it's for all people everywhere, all time. It goes beyond culture. But we will also see applications that are culture-bound, that will need to be adapted across changing human cultures and changing circumstances. Unchanging as well as changing. Unchanging core, changing applications. That's an important distinction. And we'll come to that later on. But how do we know, maybe your question, how do we know which is which? Do we just cherry pick which bits that we like that we say, well, that's changing because we don't like those bits. The unchanging bits, the bits we do like. How do we know? Well, here's a clue. Whenever you come to part of Scripture, you're thinking, what is unchanging? What is changing? Look to the reasons given, the line of reasoning, okay? It's here in 1 Corinthians. Both different lines of reasoning are here. When there is an appeal in the logic or the reasoning to the Old Testament Scripture, and especially to the creation order, how God made the world, how He made the world from our earliest human ancestors before there were such things as culture, race, languages. If it's appealing to that, especially if it's creation, even before sin entered the world, right? Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when you see it appealing to those things, they are transcultural for all people at all time. But when there is a reason or appeal to custom or social situations that's very specific to their time, then it's likely to be more culture-bound. You'll see in this chapter there's both. 
right? That's often how you can shortcut to make the decision which is which. All right, so let's go. Uh, point number two, let's firstly tackle what is in this passage, the unchanging transcultural stuff, the truths. Let me give you a quick context. If you haven't been with us in 1 Corinthians, and by the way, if you've come join us today, um, this is like you're really going to get into some hard work, okay? And I hope you'll still stick with it. And if, if you've come to Rice last night, um, so glad you could come back and join our church and visit our church. But this is going to be very unlike Rice was last night, okay? Anyway, quick context. But we like to do hard work on the Bible because we, God made our brains and we want to engage our brains. Okay, quick context. Paul is dealing with very specific issues raised by this church in Corinth in the ancient world. Um, we, we saw starting with chapter 7, issues like marriage came up. Chapter 8, right, food sacrifice to idols. Now, chapter 11 is part of a whole section of chapters 8, 9, 10, all the way 12, 13, 14, right? So starting from chapter 8 all the way to chapter 14, and really the kind of collection of all the issues dealt with have to do with worship, right? Worship, giving God His due honor personally, but particularly as a church. So have a look at verse 2. Let's um, have a look at it again. This is how this passage kicks off. Uh, Paul starts with praising them. Right? They're not doing anything wrong. This is great. He's saying, you're doing well here. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Now, verse 3, we're actually going to spend all of point 2 on because everything hangs on this one verse. If you understand verse 3, everything will follow. And verse 3, I want to say, is that unchanging and transcultural bit. So we want to tackle verse 3 first. Here's some main points from verse 3 that we get. Number one, everyone has a head, you see there. Now, some people think that head is the wrong translation. They want to, they think it's better to translate the word as source. So head, not as in someone in charge, but head as in the head of a river. Right? When we mean head of the river is the source of a river. Now, that's one argument, but actually important scholarship over the last 30 years or so has shown that that translation, that idea of source, is pretty flimsy. The word, I think, is rightly translated as head. So what does head mean? Well, head can mean various things. Um, and in some sense, the head of a nation is slightly different to head prefect, okay? If you have head prefects at, at school. But at least there's something in common even with the different ideas of head, and that is headship at least implies some sort of leadership. Yeah, maybe different degrees of leadership, sure, but at least some sort of leadership and some sort of authority. Again, the head of a nation is going to have different authority to the head prefect, but there's something in that, leadership authority. Now, the, po the point that Paul is making here is that everyone has a head. Now, his point isn't to set up a hierarchy like a ranking system of relationships, of headship, all the way from God to us. I mean, if that was the case, he would have worded and ordered things differently. He would have done something like this. The head, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman. All right, if he was trying to highlight hierarchy, that's what he would have done. That's not what he does, right? Instead, it's worded and structured in a different way, isn't it? The head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man. The head of Christ is God. 
And it's trying to highlight that main point under point 2a. That is, everyone, including Jesus Christ, by the way, everyone has a head. The only one that doesn't have the head is God the Father. But everyone, man, woman, even Christ has a head. That's what it's trying to, not hierarchy, right? From all the way from the top down, but the fact that everyone has a head. So what does Paul mean when he says that the head of the woman is man? I, I don't think we have an issue with the head of man is Christ. Don't think we have an issue with the head of Christ is God. The real clincher is going to be the middle one, right? So what does Paul mean by that? Well, I reckon it's helpful maybe to talk about what he doesn't mean. So what doesn't Paul mean? Number one, Paul does not mean that the head of women in general is men in general. You got that? Important point. He's not saying the head of women in general is men in general, because that would mean that simply by, view, by virtue of you being female, no matter what context, whether we're talking about the family or the church or the workplace, that men, by virtue of them being male, have to be your heads. So if you're in the family and you have a younger brother, he is still your head. If you're a woman employee, you should never be a manager or CEO because the men should be CEOs and managers, and only men should be presidents, kings, and prime ministers. That's what would it mean if we say that the head of every woman is every man in general, yeah? That's not what Paul is talking about. Here he's primarily talking about the marriage relationship, okay? The marriage relationship, because here's the thing. The word woman and the word man, same words in the original. The New Testament was written in Greek. Same word as wife and husband. And when they're paired together like that in the New Testament, like it is here, it's almost always primarily talking about the wife and husband relationship. And when it's paired together like this, like here, and the issue or topic is about headship and roles, it's always, not almost always, it's always about the wife and the husband. So for example, Ephesians 5, don't have to look it up, Colossians 3, right? Same words for man, woman, wife, husband, wife. When in that context, it's always talking about the husband and the wife. And also... And probably more importantly, okay, so you got that point? He's not talking about women in general, headed by men in general, or every specific woman, no matter what context, headed by every specific man, no matter what context. Talking about primarily husband and wife, family. Second, more importantly, what he doesn't mean is a headship that means inequality. And especially a headship in our context where people have been abused or maybe currently being abused by those in authority, especially, statistically, likely more likely to be by the men, by the husbands, it doesn't mean a headship that should be at all in any sense open to abuse. Now, why do I say that? Well, point 2B, it's because this is all structured to highlight one key thing. See, for both wives in their role and husbands in their role, Jesus is everyone's reference point. Did you notice that? Jesus is everyone's reference point. How is the husband supposed to be head of the wife? Well, it's as Jesus is head of the man. Yeah? 
So how are wives to be headed by their husbands? As Jesus is headed by God the Father. Jesus is the reference point for both the man or the husband and the woman or the wife. And that's why you cannot say that the head is greater in worth or in being. That there's some sort of inequality in terms of actual core. Because Jesus, his head is God the Father, but we know from the Bible and our understanding of God being three persons in one trinity is that God the Son is fully equal with God the Father in terms of being God. There is no inequality there, you see. Jesus Christ can be headed by God the Father and yet be fully equal with God. So you cannot say that if there is husband-wife headship, that somehow the husband is greater in worth or being. You see that? So Jesus is everyone's reference point. So how does Jesus model both headship as well as modeling someone who is headed by someone and honoring someone else's headship? Well, a great passage to look at is this. Philippians chapter 2. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, the word there is slave, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to, sorry, it's got cut off, but it's only a few more words, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. All right. Husbands, and in fact, if you are head in any sort of way within the context of church relationships, take note. You are to be head like Jesus is the head. Jesus, who is head over the universe. He is in very nature God. But look what kind of head he is. He gives up all of the power and pride and perks of being that head, and he instead comes as a servant. He serves. He gives up his rights. He gives up his life on the cross to serve the very people he is head over. He dies for them. Now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're not yet a Christian, don't miss this, okay? Everything else today is, you know, someone's going to go over your head. That's fine. But concentrate now because this is the important bit for you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is the important bit. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him personally? Because he is your God who came to serve you. He came to die for you, for your sins. And if you trust in him today, you can receive forgiveness and eternal life. That's really the important bit. But if you are a Christian, especially if you are a Christian husband, how could you possibly conclude that headship is that domineering, authoritarian, threatening, strong-arming, or anything close to abuse-type headship? You cannot, right? Not if your reference point is Jesus, because this is the complete opposite of abuse, isn't it? 
So wives, what does it mean to have husbands as your head? Well, again, Jesus is our reference point. Now, Philippians 2 also highlights this. Because without being anything less in worth or power or divinity than God the Father, you see how, why did Jesus become a man? Yes, it's to save us, but he also, the Bible says, he joyfully went to the cross. He obeyed his head, God the Father. It was a mission of God the Father sending God the Son and the Son saying, yes, I will do that because I love you. And I want to do what honors you. And so he goes all the way to the cross. Now, was that easy for Jesus? No, it wasn't. You know that the night before he went to the cross, he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says to God the Father, his head, he says, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this at all. It's going to really, really hurt. And he's not just talking about crucifixion. He's talking about going to hell on the cross. And he pleads with God the Father. If it's at all possible, take it away from me. But then he ends saying, Yet not my will, but yours be done. Do you see? Even as he is headed by God, the Father, he makes his case, but then he willingly and joyfully trusts his Father out of love. And that's the model for wives. Now, even with the you know, clarification that I've given about what it doesn't mean, it still is likely to be uncomfortable for some. But this idea of male-female relationships played out in marriage, in the home, this is a consistent teaching of the Bible, that there is a husband headship in the marriage home, but it is a headship modeled on Jesus. Yeah? That is in the Bible and it's consistent. Now, Again, please raise it at question time if you, if, if you want to raise it up or push back. But let me just apply this for a moment. Um, this is a challenge to both husbands and wives in different ways. So firstly, husbands. Or those of you who want to be husbands one day. I think husbands can fail to be like Jesus in their headship of their wives in two opposite but equally sinful ways. They both start with A. One is abuse. The other is abdication. Sorry, it's a big word, but I wanted it to start with A. You can abuse your headship by being domineering, controlling, selfish and inconsiderate, belittling, angry, manipulative, violent, you know the list. You can abuse it. And if you've done that, if you're doing that, husbands, to the precious wife that God has entrusted to you to love and serve as Jesus loves and serves His church, then may I urge you to repent. today. The second A, and let me just say this is just as likely, perhaps even more, is to abdicate. Abdicate is to give away your responsibility, to abdicate your headship. It's the opposite, okay? 
The husband who abdicates his headship just becomes over-passive. Never takes the initiative to love, to care, to protect, to honor, to care for, to romance. Essentially, I think this is a huge problem for, increasingly a huge problem for generations of men growing up. This is why Jordan Peterson, if you've heard of that internet sensation, why he has a book that everyone loves, young men especially, because we are a generation, you are a generation of man babies. Men who are unwilling and don't, know even, don't even know how to take responsibility over your own lives, much less the life of a future wife or children entrusted to you. You just don't take any responsibility. Your wives are frustrated. They would just love for you to step up, take the lead. If you're a Christian husband, just are you leaving your wife to think about how your family is growing in the Lord? Are you leaving your wife to do all of the Christian education of the home? Do your, do your kids even know that you're a Christian? <laughs> do you care? Because you're abdicating your headship. And that is just as bad, even if the uh, results aren't as apparent. So men, if you want to be a husband, if you are a husband, be careful of abuse. Yes, no excuses for that. But we need to equally call out abdication. And if that is you, repent today. And by the way, in both, get help if you need. How about wives? For those wanting to be wives, you can fail to be Christ-like in your role. Again, with two opposite but equally sinful ways. Uh, they don't all start with A, but you'll get what I mean. It's active and passive. In that you can be actively undermining the headship of your husband. Actively undermining by being domineering. By being controlling. By being inconsiderate and selfish. By being manipulative. Maybe even by being violent. Oh, by the way, that looks a lot like abusive headship, doesn't it? It's because it's the same. But more likely, wives, you could be passively undermining. And it's often going to be with your words. Your words are your most powerful weapon. By nagging. By putting them down. By disrespecting. Belittling him with your words to him, with your words about him, as you talk about him to others. Overcritical. He never feels like you trust him. He always feels like you expect him to fail anyway, so why does he even... That's passive. Is that you? Because if it is you, repent today. All right, it's a long point, but again, this is a transcultural point. Everyone has a head. Your reference point is Jesus. Lastly, honor your head in public worship. That's really the, the guts of what this passage is going to apply. Everyone has a head. Honor your head in public worship. Now here, we're going to move from the transcultural to the cultural. We're going to move to point three now. You see, wives can honor or dishonor their heads, that is their husbands, by what they wear and don't wear. We'll come to that. And husbands can honor or dishonor their heads, Jesus, 
by what they wear and don't wear. And here we are in the cultural realm of Corinth. So point three, um, number A, we're going to look at Corinth first. Let me read again from verse four. Follow with me. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Now, firstly, a note, praying, prophesying. I can't unpack what prophesying means in the New Testament church. We'll actually come to that when we get to 1 Corinthians 14, probably next year. But likely, together, it means some sort of upfront ministry in the assembly, okay, in the Christian gathering, in church, leading in prayer, not just praying on your own, leading in prayer, speaking or applying God's word to the congregation. We'll just call that prophesying for a moment. Now, I want you to note, though, both men and women get to do this, all right? Both men and women are assumed to be able to pray and prophesy in the assembly, whatever prophesying, prophesying means, but some avenue of public leadership in the assembly. Both men and women get to do it. Now, what he's saying is, when you exercise this upfront public role in the church gathering, if wives have their heads uncovered, it somehow dishonors their husbands. But then the flip side is true. If men or husbands have their head covered, it somehow dishonors their head, Jesus. Now, that's, that's the puzzling bit and a very cultural bit. So what do we know of head coverings in the ancient world. Well, Roman society, which is, uh, you know, the Roman Empire ruled the world back then, like many places in currently in the uh, Arabic and Middle Eastern worlds, women, especially wives, covered their heads in public. Right? We're not talking about full-face burqas. We're talking about a scarf or a shawl over their head, more like the hijab. All right, so, you know, our lovely queen. Because everyone likes... Elizabeth. So it's, it's, that, it's that kind of head covering, okay? A scarf over your head. Now, you might think, oh, you know, in, in Islamic world, in Arabic world, that's just sexist and oppressive. And do you know what? If you, if you ever ask an Arabic lady with a head covering whether they feel oppressed or it's sexist, they're actually going to tell you what they actually think. And that is, it's, it's, it's actually a sign of honor. All right, so let's not make assumptions for other cultures, yeah? Right, it's, it's a matter of honor for them. It signifies purity before marriage if you're a, an adult woman, and it signifies faithfulness within marriage. For them, it's something that they want to do, they love to do. Now, ancient historical evidence shows that at that time there was a movement, a, a sort of a, a rebellion movement of what they call new Roman wives um, of the upper class, and they wanted to rebel against this convention. And so rather than being faithful in their marriages, these women slept around. They had lots of adulterous affairs with often younger men. They flaunted their sexual freedom. And part of the way that they made their statement was the way they styled their hair. And one of the things they didn't do is bother with head coverings. Right? We know historically that that happened. Now, we're not 100% that this is the background to 1 Corinthians 11, but there's a good chance there is. That somehow no head coverings in public worship would have been a deliberate signal of sexual freedom and sexual promiscuity. Something that would clearly, of course, dishonor your husbands or future husbands if you're unmarried. Now, interestingly, the punishment for adultery 
which not, wasn't always enforced, especially amongst the upper class of women. That's why they got away with it. But if it was enforced, it's often public humiliation by, you guessed it, shaving off a woman's hair. And so that's why Paul makes the point. If you want to cast off your honor by, wearing head, by not wearing head coverings, well, why not just go the whole way and embrace the dishonor of having your hair shaved? You see? That's the logic there. All right, so that's to wives. Now, to husbands in the first century, why is the opposite true? Why is it if they covered their head, it's dishonoring Christ, their head? Now, here we are in much less certain territory. Um, we don't even know if the Corinthian men actually wanted to cover their heads in worship, because if you read it here, that's not really Paul's main point. He's sort of making maybe just a rhetorical point, a point of contrast, because I think the issue mainly has to do with the wives and what they decided what they wanted to do or not to do. Right? We know that it was not conventional for the men of that era to cover their heads in public or in worship. Now, if you want an interesting little tidbit, some ancient historical evidence uh, of men in the Roman world, and it's usually men of prominence, like Roman emperors, and I think this is a Roman emperor. I don't know exactly who, but we've got a statue of it. And do you see how he's got his toga over his head? Now, there's evidence that when they did that, they did it in pagan temple offerings of prayer and worship, and they did it so that they could highlight how important and pious and great they were. So they covered their heads with their togas to say, hey, look at me, I'm so awesome. I'm so pious. So perhaps that's in the background, that if men in Corinth in the church were tempted to basically chuck an emperor, all right, pulling their togas over their head, they were going to do it because they wanted to big note themselves. Oh, look at me. Look how cool I am. I'm just like Emperor Augustus. Making themselves seem more important. Now, if you did that, then you would dishonor your head because you're not important. Jesus is important. Now, that may be the case. Here is where I say, I simply do not know. But the point is, in Corinth, how you honored your head had a lot to do with what you did or didn't do with head coverings. Now, before we apply it to us in the next point, I want to quickly, and by quick I mean quick, okay? So if you don't keep up with the next bit, that's fine, but I want to make sure we cover the rest of the passage. So here we go, right? I'm going to take my foot off the brakes onto accelerator. Um, the rest of the passage, Paul will give two arguments or two reasons the first is from creation, the second from convention, verses 7 to 11 on creation, 13 to 16 from convention. So first the argument from creation, verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. I told you we'd go quick. Okay, here is why I say verse 3, headship idea is transcultural, because really these verses unpack the ideas of verse 3 about headship, and he appeals to, you'll notice, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and its account of creation. The first two chapters of the Bible, we don't have time to read it, but this is the blueprint of all creation before sin entered the world. And that's why I say the idea of headship applies transculturally. A few tricky bits here. 
three questions you might have. Let's go through them quickly. Number one, is Paul saying here that women are not or are less than men as image bearers of God? Seems to be implied, right? From verse uh, 7. The answer is no. He's not saying women are not in the image of God because clearly the bit he's drawing from, we don't look it up, but in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, it says that humanity, mankind together, male and female, are created in God's image. I think what he's doing here is particularly emphasizing the order of creation in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2, we get in the Garden of Eden, Adam first, Eve second. So Adam was created by God as the first human, Eve created by God out of Adam as a complement to him, and I think he's reflecting on that order there. Right? He's not saying from silence that Eve is not in the image of God. He's emphasizing order. Second puzzle you might be wondering about, does verse 9, women created for man, isn't that open to abuse? And it certainly would be. But here, I think, is a translation issue. It's actually better translated as, neither was man created because of woman. It shouldn't be for, it should be because of. In fact, if you study Greek in first year of Bible college, you'll know that that particular preposition form, you can actually more likely, most of the time, you translate as because of. All right? Neither was man created because of woman, but woman because of man. Again, it's reflecting on Genesis 2. God makes Eve after making Adam for a purpose, that is to complement and complete humanity because of the man, the God-made woman. It's not about open to abuse. She was made for him as if you know, he gets to use her as a tool or something like that. No, that's the wrong translation. Number three, of course, everyone's wondering, what are the angels doing there in verse 10, yeah? I'm not really sure. Two possibilities. Number one, angels angelic beings so angels in heaven are somehow witnesses of what's happening on earth particularly our worship on earth so we honor god and we honor his heavenly company by what we do in public worship because they witness us that's one possibility second possibility we're talking about human messengers same word for angel is the word messenger so perhaps what happens in the corinthian church can bring public dishonor if and when human messengers or representatives from other churches or perhaps even from the secular authorities comes and joins in the worship. If you muck up here, you're going to dishonor what you do in the assembly in the eyes of others, human messengers. Take your pick. All right? Okay, argument from creation. Number two, he gives a reason, argument from convention. Verse 13, rest of the passage, he says, judge for yourselves. Uh, that's a hint. We're arguing from convention here. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with a head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach her that a man has long hair? It is a disgrace to him. But if a woman has long hair, it's to her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. See, what is he appealing to? Convention in the church, convention in their social context. If you have long hair here as a man, you're probably going to be kind of cool. Especially if you were rice last night. The guy who rapped, he is like a man bun, and I just want to be like him. And if you have short hair as a woman, right? Currently, the fashion is to go the bob. Go the bob. Why not? Right? This is the issue of head coverings. It's cultural. It's contextual. And that's the part that's contextual. And we need to make sure we apply it to us properly. So Paul here is appealing to their common understanding, their conventions, what seems natural to them, first century Roman culture. It was obvious to them, it was obvious to Paul, not so obvious to us. Back then, Romans 
men wore their hair short, women wore their hair long. That's not even the case beyond Rome in the first century in ancient China at the same time. Han Dynasty, I think. Right? Men probably had long hair. Right? Different convention, different marks of gender difference in different societies. All right, last point. Let me summarize. What is transcultural? Remember? Primarily, it's what I said in point two. Transcultural. All people, all time. Everyone has a head. Everyone's reference is Jesus. And we are to honor our heads in public worship. There is a secondary transcultural bit that I didn't make too much of. But you could probably say from this passage, the secondary transcultural bit is there is a real difference. Okay, this is just assumed. There is a real difference between men and women. Really, there is. And it ought to be reflected in culturally appropriate ways. Now, I make that point, which I wouldn't have had to make a long time ago, because we do have non-binary gender theory and all that kind of stuff. Can I just say, and this is not the point, time to deal with it, please ask in question time, but the whole non-binary gender thing, and I know some people have really suffered because of it, and that's not an excuse for it, but that's what happens when arts faculties take over science faculties. I'm an arts student. I love the social science. But you know what? There's no scientific basis for non-binary gender theory. There just isn't. All right? There just isn't. It's, it's what happens when arts faculties take over. And they shouldn't because the science is not behind it. Let me just leave it there. All right? There are real differences. But that's secondary. It's assumed. So how are we to apply this in our culture? Let me slow down now. Whew, take a breath. You ready? Okay. I'm just leaving you hanging. Let me put it simply. I do not believe when applying to us, this is actually going to be about what we wear to church. Now, I've listened to a bunch of sermons and men I respect preached on it. And they often will make the application from here that it's about maintaining male-female distinctions in dress that's culturally appropriate to us. And that would be one of their primary landing points, applications. I don't disagree that that is a good thing, okay? I'm not saying everyone should cross-dress next week. No, I'm not saying that. But I actually think that's taking the secondary transcultural truth and ignoring the primary. The primary one, remember, is how do you express honoring your respective heads? That's the primary one. For the Corinthians, yes, it was about what they wore, head coverings. For us, I just don't think we... It's, I don't think it's at all about what we wear. Do you? That it's somehow attire-related. What I wear here is going to, well, how we do it is going to dishonor our heads. See, I think for us, it's going to be primarily about our words and our actions, is it not? If you think about it, if you have an opportunity to lead or speak from up front, like what Johnny is doing or what Manlock did, you need to honor your head. And here is actually, we can widen our application, can't we, beyond just husbands and wives, beyond just gender-based headship. Because here in church, there are lots of relationships that are based on headship. And if you have a head, give the, giving them and it's displaying due honor. Yes, it is wives to husbands, yes, but it's also children to parents. It's also younger to older. It's also members to your church pastors and elders, do you see? And your leaders. And so how can we, in our words, especially from church, if you're doing something up front, how can we bring honor and not dishonor to those who are our heads? That is the question. I just don't think it's primarily about what we wear. 
Now you've got to remember, even those who are heads, we have heads too. So husbands, you're not the ultimate head. Jesus is your head. And in fact, in church, most husbands, most of you, will have pastors and elders and leaders as your heads. And even pastors and elders like me, we have our heads. It's ultimately Jesus. In my words and actions, I've got to make sure I don't dishonor him by making myself seem like Jesus to you. Do you see what I mean? So that, that's the better question. How can husbands, church leaders, pastors, elders also honor and not dishonor their heads? Now, how is that going to be worked out? I've run out of time. But here's the thing. Is it going to be dress-related? Probably not. Primarily actions and words. Let me pray, and then I'll get Johnny to come back up. Let's pray. Father God, we've looked through a pretty difficult part of your word, but your word is good and you love us. Help us even as we think about questions to ask. Help us to work out how we can get a handle of it, not so that we can just intellectually get it, but that we can honor you. And in this passage, honor the heads that you've placed over us. In Jesus' name, amen.